Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a dad, and my son needs just five more minutes on Minecraft. Just five. He's doing something. Screen time is a toughie. So much value, yet so many ways that things can go wrong. I also know that it's a tension for almost every parent with the newest flavor of concern being artificial intelligence. So I want to know how I can teach my son to use technology without being used by it. We already know about the commodification of attention, and we also know that we are at a time where we really need to think about how AI is creating a forcing function for education. What we're less sure about is what constitutes the right amount of screen time or how to engage with it in a way that grows and builds young minds. And that's why I have an amazing guest for today's episode. If you can imagine a Venn diagram with education on one side and gaming on the other, the overlapping section is where Ash Brandon lives. Brandon is a dedicated teacher with a master's in music education and a love of gaming. The very natural question that grows out of this combination of skills and interests includes how we can apply concepts of gamification to learning and greater autonomy for our kids. And what I particularly appreciate about their approach is a shift away from black and white thinking around screens and toward a more balanced consideration of how and what our kids are consuming and playing. Since 2016, Brandon has been demystifying video games. Talks on the subject that they have given to uh, education conferences have included amazing titles such as You Have Died of Dysentery, Meaningful Gaming in Education. And you can also check out their body of work on the Instagram page, The Gamer Educator. It's one word. It boasts over 150,000 followers, and I'm one of them, and I know that I'm not the only one finding great value in this resource. That's how this interview came to be. So in our talk today, we take on some important concepts, including gamification and some more modern frames on screen time. Brennan also explains Roblox so simply that even a 40-year-old can understand. Before we begin, hey, listen, go to dadstrength.com. Check out our weekly calls for dads. This is a place where you can join a community of like-minded dads to talk about fatherhood, focus, and fitness, always with a balanced, strengths-focused outlook. If you want to learn more about the kinds of conversations we have, you can subscribe to the newsletter, a weekly quick dose of ideas on fatherhood, focus, and fitness. You'll also find out about what's going on in the Dad Strength community, including upcoming retreats. That's all on dadstrength.com. Now for my interview with Ash Brandon. Let's get into it. Yeah, so I'm Ash. My pronouns are they, them, and I go by The Gamer Educator on Instagram, and I've been doing that for almost three years. And my page really talks about all things tech and families and kids and screen time and managing those things, trying to find a balance so that screens can benefit whole families. And I am, by day, I am a middle school, what we call teacher librarian. I work as a librarian in a middle school, but I am a credentialed teacher. And I've been a librarian for two years. I was a classroom teacher for 11 years before that, teaching pretty much everything at the middle school level from math to social studies to music and electives. So I bring a big educator lens into the work that I do. That's actually how I got into this space. I was looking at um, video games and education and how we 
pull from the motivating things that video games do, how we imbue that into the way we teach. And uh, with COVID, I pivoted into social media so I could scratch that creative itch. And it's become now what it is, what it is now, which is a really lovely place on the internet, in my opinion, and trying to help families manage all things screen time. Hard agree. You're okay. one of my favorite resources, which is why we're doing this. And, and I'm glad uh, that you're joining me. How would you sort of summarize your philosophy? I would say that my central tenets are um, screen time is a social inequality. I won't drag my soapbox out unless you tell me to. But that that might like little pithy soundbite. And screen time should benefit all families. We should be thinking about all families, everyone in a family when we consider our use of screen time. And screens can be part of a child's life without being the center of their life. I'd say those are like the three things that guide a lot of the work that I do. What would you say are are some of the primary tensions that parents have around screen time? How would you describe those? I would say that probably the biggest one is some version of, of caregiver feeling tension, to use your word, in relation to a child's behavior, somehow in relation to screen time. And that takes so many different forms. You know, it could be how they react when screen time's over. It could be how they react in the middle of playing. It could be the way they conduct themselves. It could be the way they ask for or structure their day to get screen time. But I would say, you know, behavior around, you know, a screen in some way that absolutely drives probably 90% of, of the concern that I hear for families. How do you speak to that? How do you get people to sort of take a breath and evaluate what battles are worth fighting, what's important, maybe what's not so important? I would say the first thing that I try to do is I try to actually take the screen out of it because in many cases, the screen is actually not very relevant. And I think many caregivers assume that the screen is the most relevant thing. And my personal philosophical opinion on this is that we want to have something to blame because if we can't blame the screen, then that might mean the problem is us, our parenting, or our kid. And we don't want any of those to be the problem. So screens must be the problem. The problem with that is that that doesn't actually help us. Right? If I blame the screen, I feel better. Right? It feels good to blame something. It feels good to not have responsibility. But that does not make screen time any easier tomorrow. It does not help me prevent his power struggle. It doesn't help me navigate the power struggle I'm in. And it doesn't set my kid up for future success. It just kind of perpetuates this. So I think removing screens from the situation and actually just trying to focus solely in on what is the behavior that is causing tension sometimes can allow us to see it as any other behavioral issue because often that's what it is. Um, whether it's a boundary or enforcing a boundary, et cetera, if we can focus on you know, the behavior at hand and not attach it to a screen, then we can handle it how we would handle it if it were about toys or friends or bath time or bedtime or whatever. So if I'm understanding your take on this, you know, we, we have a common issue like losing our temper, losing control. And if it were in the classroom, if it were on the playground, if it were with a friend's group, wherever else that would be losing your temper. 
However, sometimes it's tempting to go, oh, this is screen. This is it's screens as opposed to the, my kid is losing their temper before, during, after video games, before, during, after a show. Yeah. There is, there is a real sort of contingent of people that really want one thing to blame or uh, one thing to pursue for a feeling of certainty, of knowledge. Uh, you know, this is the thing. And if we can just, uh, whether it's, you know, carbohydrates or, or meat or, um, pick, you know, pick your, pick your cause. If we can only do this thing or we can only not do this thing, all of our problems will be solved. Life turns out to be kind of more complicated than that. Yes. And I totally empathize with that because, you know, we don't want to feel like there's something wrong with our kids. We don't want to feel like we are screwing up our kids. And if I blame the screen, then it becomes a very binary choice, right? I have the screen or I don't. And I say simple because that's not easy. It's not easy mm -hmm. to suddenly say, well, we're just not going to do it then. Everyone who has a kid knows that's not easy. But it is simple in terms of, well, if I can just blame the screen, then all the problems are the screen's fault. And therefore, okay, now I know how I could theoretically fix it. I just removed that. But in the age that we're in, you know, technology is not going away. Uh, and the ubiquity of technology and the ease of access and use, even in places like education, is it's just increasing. It's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so what do we ultimately want? We probably do not want our kids to be completely abstinent from technology. And abstinent only education does not tend to work, no matter mm -hmm. what you're talking about, right? And I use that word really intentionally because when we think about abstinence, we think, oh, yeah, that doesn't, that all or nothing approach doesn't tend to work with a lot of things. And that is also true when it comes to things like screen time. You know, if we ask our hypothetical parent selves, you know, what do I want for my child in terms of technology? Probably we're going to say something like, I want them to have a balance between tech and other things. I want them to be able to manage their time effectively. I want them to be able to, you know, put the controller down when they are 19 and they have to go take a midterm. And those are all really important life skills. And once again, if we take the video games out of it, we actually focus on, well, what are the skills there? It's executive functioning, it's emotional regulation, it's time management. We can teach those skills outside of screen time. Absolutely. And we do in many ways. But if we withhold that technology until, you know, one day they are moving out and they're having to do it on their own, they've never really applied those skills in that specific way. Mm -hmm. And now we're essentially asking them to manage their own time as an adult with the technology regulatory skills of a child. And that's probably going to be pretty difficult. So it's possible to get them to that point, that goal that we have for them, while managing screens along the way, handing over some of that responsibility to them in age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate ways so that one day they are able to do that on their own. So we don't have to say yes to screens and be saying yes to every screen all the time for however long we want, just like we would never allow them to dictate their own bedtime when they're really little, right? Or be in charge of everything they ate when they're really little. But as they get older, yeah, you've got yeah. a 17 year old. Right. Maybe the best thing is not to rigidly enforce a bedtime, you know, six months before they leave the house right? to go and be an adult out in the world. Right. And we probably also allow them some of that relatively safe 
natural consequence <laughs> opportunities of learning like, oh, you stayed up really late. Now you're really tired and you still have to go to school and you still have to do your homework and you still have to do the things that are your responsibilities. Yeah, like it's harder to do that when you're tired. You know, we can allow them those chances to figure that out in a relatively safe way. We can be their safety net. But yeah, just as you said, we probably would not ship them off to college having never done their laundry, never decided their own bedtime, never made their own meal before. Yeah, we're sort of, we're shifting them into autonomy and and probably, you know, it's an ages and stages thing. Not It's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what I'm hearing kind of going back to that earlier point too is, have we had these conversations in different contexts? Do we have language around it that's universal for all of these things? It's not screen time specific, but are we talking about deferring gratification? Are we talking about doing the things that we need to first? Are we talking about regulating emotion? not losing it. I mean, I like, I'll tell you what I do and you can give me your full judgment, but I like, you know, my son will lose it sometimes if I'm beating him at video games. And and I mean, my answer is you, you shouldn't have challenged me to Mario Kart, first of all, uh, if that's your attitude. But secondly, I, you know, my, my attitude is this is fun stuff. This is easy stuff. Now, I, I don't know me. I don't want to downplay his emotions, but I also want to say this is this is almost like a consequence. This is your time to make mistakes and get upset. And you can have all the feelings you want in here without throwing stuff around. I don't know. How do, how do, how do I do? Yeah. You know, something I think is really helpful to keep in mind for adults who, especially those who didn't have a strong relationship with video games when they were younger. I think those of us who did grow up playing games, we, we do empathize really deeply with the emotional weight that um, we can feel in games because we know just how much of ourselves gets invested in what we're doing. And from the outside, I think we forget that there is a substantive amount of effort. And I I mean that in many ways, time, you know, um, skill building, uh, all of that goes in to something like video games and you don't see it in quite the same way from the outside, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. So Something I say a lot is that, you know, the, the video game itself is not real, but the emotions it evokes are 100% real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if my child were playing, you know, a, an informal soccer game and lost every goal they kicked, well, how would I handle that? Would it help if I said to them, you know, this is your chance to make mistakes. This is supposed to be fun. I don't know. Some kids, yeah, maybe that would help. Some kids, they might feel like that's not taking the weight of it seriously. It really depends on the kid. So maybe they need more empathy. Yeah. Right. So sometimes that's why I say like, how would you handle this if it were about any other thing? Like insert thing you can relate to here, right? If your kid also plays a sport or does a martial art or or learns an instrument or any other skill-based thing, well, how would you handle it if they were feeling disappointment about that? And we can bring in those same strategies because then we're making it clear to our kid that these are actually the same skill. Losing is a skill. Mm -hmm. And um, something that actually the biggest advice I give on losing, because I, this is something I hear a lot is like, we just wanted to play Mario Kart and have fun. And now everyone's upset, you know, (laughs) I say, you know, we forget that losing is a skill. And for very little kids who might not have much gaming experience, they also probably don't have that much losing experience. And so I think it's extremely helpful to actually model and scaffold how to lose. So something that I have done with my child is we're playing together and I might 
lose intentionally, not because I want them to win, but because I want them to see how I'm going to handle losing. So I will lose and then I will actually model like getting upset and how I'm going to deal with it. You know, I might model saying, I was in the lead. How did you win? I thought I was going to win. And then doing something about it. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to stand up and stretch. I'll be right back. I know I can try again. Like, I know I know this is just a game, but it felt really frustrating. I think I want to try again. You know, just modeling some of those strategies. Another thing I have done is if I can tell that my child is going to lose, I will maybe do better than them, but not the best. So if they're in fifth place, maybe I'll come in third. And so then I'm still losing. And yeah, so and then, we, we can both be mad at whoever won. Exactly. We can mm-hmm. both be like, oh, that Princess Peach came out of nowhere, you know. Uh, and then we can co-regulate, you know, we can we can commiserate. Yeah, I still did better, but then we're still kind of practicing that skill of losing. Let's let's come back to that word co-regulate, because I think it's an important <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, being able to kind of model that regulation and sometimes do it along with a child, maybe who's not totally capable of doing it independently and doing that regulation for yourself as the adult, maybe because you need it, but also <laughs> then because because it sometimes can make it possible for your child to do that. You know, if and it, to put it in like an everyday example, if you come home and you've had a just really difficult day and you're sad or angry or whatever, you might go to someone you love and you might ask for a hug or you you might ask for something from them because their calm and their presence is going to help you be calm in your presence. So if you've ever like hugged someone in a moment of emotional distress and just kind of hung on to them and just kind of steadied your breath with theirs or just kind of listened to their heartbeat or something that kind of helps your nervous system calm up, that's co-regulation. But one example anyway. And sometimes when we do that for kids or with our kids, it's not only a kind of gateway for them to be able to do it, it's also a model for them of what they could try on their own yeah so as opposed to pretending as if we never get angry or upset to show that not only do i feel this way i've got a process there's mm-hmm. a way to navigate this be okay with it my my son is an aside finds it hilarious when he beats me at something and i'll say first of all i'm furious um, <laughs> loves that and and so yeah we can we can feel these things we don't have to pretend otherwise um what do you think are the highest uses of screen time. What do you mean by highest? Where do we get the most value? Like where, you know, if if we were only gonna do these things, if as a parent you have some apprehensions, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, one of one of the messages from you that I really appreciate is there's some really great stuff that comes out of this. We have an opportunity. Well, you know, and I'll let you fill in the blanks, but you know, where where do we really benefit from screen time or where can we? I think it's important to think about what function do you need it to serve? This is where my social inequity soapbox starts coming up. Because to be completely honest, if I'm in a place where I can say, I'm going to choose something that's super academically enriching, though there's a lot to say about screens and how they can or cannot be academically enriching, I'm going to sit down and do it right alongside my child so I can point out the things they're doing or we're going to only do it together as a family. Those are extremely privileged ways of using screens. Mm -hmm. To be able to say, we're only going to do it in these circumstances. We're only going to do it when these parameters are met. That is a thing that we can say when 
we have other things to fill systemic gaps in our lives or we have fewer systemic gaps that we face. So many families face systemic gaps or inequalities like a lack of affordable childcare or a lack of having more than one caregiver present at any given time because they only have one or because they have shift work or multiple jobs or whatever. People who face disability or chronic illness or managing care for other people in a household, all of those things create gaps um, that have to be filled. And even in an educational space, we see we see screens fill educational gaps all the time, right? Too high a class size, lack of paraeducator support, not enough staffing, and then an increased demand for differentiation and achievement toward uh, standardized test scores. All of that then creates more reliance on screens of technology that say that they can provide some of that differentiation or guided um, and individualized learning. And I'm not saying that technology should be filling those gaps. I actually don't think it should be. But if we think that that's an over-reliance on technology, the key there is to address the gaps, right? If I, if I blame the tech, that doesn't fix the gap. It doesn't give more educator support. It doesn't help that caregiver who's burnt out and has no time. All it does is make them feel bad. So the highest use is the use that's going to benefit everyone in a family. You know, if I'm if I'm a single caregiver and my option is you know have kids underfoot and crawling over me and I'm trying to make dinner and I'm going to become a dysregulated mess who cannot be present with their kids then my highest use of screens might be keeping them safe and quiet so my neighbors don't complain. I don't get evicted and lose my housing. And I can have 30 minutes to not be have things asked of me. And then I can be more present for my family. That might be the highest use of screens. If I have those needs met, then maybe the highest use of screens is being able to bond together as a family, to play something together, to watch a movie together. Maybe it is using it as an academic tool to help supplement something that's happening at school. So I think it's about identifying what purpose do you need it to serve? And, you know, how is it how is it best going to serve that particular purpose? But all families are different and all the ways that we need to use screens are different. So I think it's kind of important not to compare them as better or worse. Not that you were doing that, but I think it's important to keep that in mind because the use of screens is often more nuanced than than we might think. So, you know, what you're describing is very context specific. I like you on a soapbox. You look good on a soapbox. <laughs> I carry it with me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at the other edge on the sword. What what are some of the risks or, or concerns you might have? Where do we use it not so judiciously? I think that if there was one thing that I would tell a caregiver to do, before they say yes to a particular type of media, it would be to find any way you can of vetting the content beforehand. And again, I know that that alone requires a certain amount of privilege and access and time or media literacy. And I know that that's a big ask for, for many people. So this could take many forms. It could take the form of downloading something and playing it on your own, probably the most intensive of time and like mental attention. It could mean you watch somebody play it on YouTube or download a demo or watch a trailer. It could mean looking up the content in a review site. I really like Common Sense Media. 
I like common sense media because they're not a religiously affiliated organization. You're getting like kind of nonpartisan <laughs> reviews. And I really like that they allow adults, kids, and educators to review. So you can really see from like people on the ground using the thing um, Ooh, yeah. what they think. I really like it from that. And they review TV shows, apps, movies, video games, books. You know, I use it for books I buy in the library to really get an idea of age. So I even just that of quickly looking at what does common sense media have to say, I think is really helpful. And at the very least, if we can be there when our child is accessing the content for the first time so that we can ensure that certain parameters are set up. And if you're unsure of what that is, it could be looking at, you know, is there is there an online function to whatever this is? I'm, as, I'm assuming we're talking about games or apps. So is there an online function? Is there a chat function? Is there a way to limit their conversations to people they actually know in real life? Is there a way to limit advertising? So thinking of what your big things are as a parent, you know, what are the things I would not want my child to stumble upon without me? And can I check to see if those things are possibilities mm -hmm. in, in the game? I do have a particular kind of game or game structure that I really do not like. So I can speak to that if you want me to. But yeah, go <laughs> sure, off. So, okay. <laughs> so um, ironically, you know, the games that are probably the most popular, especially app-based app games, and probably ones that parents are really quick to say yes to are free games because they're free, right? So why wouldn't I say, yes, sure, of course you can. Often our barrier as a parent is, I don't wanna be wasting money. But the irony is that games that are free, well, they want to make money, right? So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how are they going to make money if they're free? And as soon as we fill in that gap, we can start to see the potential problems because they're gonna fill it in in one of two ways, in-app purchases or ads or both. And you can't regulate ads. You you don't you never know what's going to come up as ads in free content. I was actually just with somebody the other day. They were watching something. Yeah, on YouTube Kids, I think. No, it was not YouTube Kids. It was just regular YouTube, but their kids did use it. And they don't pay for YouTube Premium. It was free YouTube. And we were in the middle of a perfectly PG, kid-appropriate video. And a sex toy ad came on in the middle of it. <laughs> And my friend was like, my kids watch this. I was like, yeah, I mean that, yeah, you don't get to regulate ads. Ads are not commercials. Freedom isn't free, Ash. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a huge thing. Ads alone is a huge thing. If for no other reason than it's often ads for other garbage content. And then the kid's like, I want this garbage game and this one and this one. Um, but in-app purchases is a whole other thing because it completely changes the way a game is structured. So if I pay my 50 bucks for Mario Party or whatever, they have my money. They are not going to ask me for any more money. So they have my money up front. They're going to do things that make it feel compelling, that make it feel challenging, that make it feel fun, but they're not going to charge you any more money. They have your money. Yeah. But a free-to-play game has no money from you. So they actually want the opposite. They don't want it to be intrinsically motivating. If you downloaded a game for free and you were happy to pay it for free, play it for free, that's a terrible business model. 
right? The companies aren't making any money. So they have to incentivize spending. So instead of making the game feel intrinsically motivating, they are actually going to route it so that everything is pointing toward purchases. You know, oh, you would do much better or have more fun or be more successful or look cooler if you bought this thing or this weapon or this outfit or this level access. And what that does is that it actually makes those games extrinsically rewarding based on money. So instead of making you happy to play it, they're actually just trying to get you to spend more money. And the most famous example of a game that does this is Fortnite, which is extremely, extremely popular. And so I get a lot of people who will say, can my kid play Fortnite? It has guns in it. And I'm like, guns are not the problem in that game. That's not the primary problem anyway. Many games have guns, but that game has a very insidious structure and it can get even more nitty gritty. Sometimes they reward you more if you pay for the game and they reward you less if you don't and it can become very insidious. So I pay attention to structure as well. I often say free to play games are worse, but you pay for them. So that's my, that's my other soapbox. Ash, will you explain to me what Roblox is? <laughs> Roblox is the YouTube of, of games. That's the most succinct way I can put it. YouTube is mostly unregulated video content. Roblox is largely unregulated game content made by average people who have access to the game developer tools that are built within Roblox. That's a real, real simplification. There are, you know, bigger things in Roblox. There are, I think, I think there is an overarching game in Roblox, but mostly it is a is it is a platform with which to make games. So if someone says to me, can my kids play Roblox? I'm like, that's like saying, can my kids use the internet? You know, can my kids be on YouTube? And I think people think it's one game and it's not. It is a way to create other games. Are there things on there that are great? Yes. Is there a whole bunch on there that is terrible? Absolutely. There are parental controls on Roblox. They are relatively robust. I'm pretty sure you can make it so that your kids can only access things that you pre-approve, similar to something like whitelist only on YouTube. Um, and that can be one way to make sure that it's really secure. The problem with that is then that puts all the responsibility on you. You have to pre-vet everything. It can be really frustrating and annoying. But yeah, Roblox is is not a game. It's a, it's a platform. Thank you. This is very helpful. And and the other thing that I've I've kind of noticed, you know, my son is seven, and he would come home even you know from kindergarten and say, "Oh, kids are playing Roblox." And I thought, "What other kid five year olds are playing?" And what I learned was mostly no, but there's a whole fandom that exists. Kids will watch YouTube videos and they will come to school and they will trade facts you know, in, in this kind of interesting way, like what have you noticed about fandoms and kids and how they kind of talk about these worlds? I don't, I can't speak to that Roblox aspect specifically, but, you know, it reminds me a lot of, well, both, you know, child interests of when we were younger, but also like adult interests now, you know, there's a lot of interest in watching People do things like watching Twitch streamers. That's very common to watch people play games. And I think adults see that and they are like, I don't get this. Like, why would you want to watch somebody do that? But we watch people cook meals. We are never going to cook. Or professional sports. Oh, my God. Yes. 
Or we watch people make crafts that we're never going to do, right? Or repair jobs. Or like, if you go on YouTube, you'll find all these like compilation videos of, you know, um, people cleaning rugs. I don't know if you've ever seen the like professional rug cleaning videos where you're just watching somebody power wash. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm not, I'm not here to kink shame, you know, like that's cool. Right. And people will say, oh, it's really relaxing. It's really soothing. And, you know, like cooking shows have been on for decades, right? And and people aren't always watching them to make the recipes at home. You know, often we're watching them for whatever reason. It's relaxing. We want to see somebody do something we can't do. Like you said, professional sports. It's very similar idea. Also, I don't know if you grew up playing video games. I did. I did. Okay. So, like, when we grew up, you know, we were in the era of, like, the Nintendo hotline and like buying physical guides. You know, I would go to media play and buy the guide for the game. I yeah, I remember play. those. And now, I mean, you could still do that, but, but now all that content is on the internet and often it's easier to see somebody else do it. Kids really like predictability. Kids like knowing what to expect that doesn't go away with their hobbies and interests. They might like to see, okay, like, how do I do this thing? And especially in really creative, open-ended things, like games that can be super open-ended, the possibilities for how to play are so big that it can be nice to see somebody actually doing a creative idea. So then you may go, oh, I could do that. Or maybe I could do that and change it a little bit, make it my own. So it can also be a way to kind of like get inspiration or get an idea of how to engage with something. It has its analog partner to things that we used to do, uh, just just in a new form. Yeah, true enough. And I go onto YouTube to look up how to do, you know, certain household things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if I just read a description, I'd be like, no, I need to just need, I need to see somebody do it. Make sure I don't screw it up. Absolutely. This is kind of a broad question. Could you speak to gamification? in the context of of learning and so beyond video games beyond all this stuff oh i'm i've done a lot of interviews and i've not been asked that and forever so i'm very glad (laughs) this is how i got into this all so i think i'm a little different than other people came from the gamification space and that i i actually hesitated to ever even use that word because true gamification i absolutely completely agree with true gamification is how do we make an aspect of education feel game-like? How do we make it as compelling or interesting or motivating as a game, as a video game? But gamification in common practice ends up a lot of the time becoming, let's take the most superficial structural things from a video game and plaster them on to the educational content we already do And then we're going to hope that makes any difference. I took a course once in one of my degrees where the professor said, oh, this is a fully gamified course. And I thought, all right, what are we getting into? And he said, oh, well, there's no grade. Like you get a grade in this class, but you achieve your grade through points. And I'm like, that's just percentages without a percent sign, right? He's like, oh, well, to get an A, you would need, you know, 90,000 points. I'm like, it's still a 90, right? We've just changed the metric. And then it was, oh, well, you don't have any actual assignments, 
here's this list of achievements. And that really piqued my curiosity because I've used achievements in my classroom before, but they are never required. Right? Achievements in video games are things you get because you did them, but they are never required game content. And in this case, this professor is saying, oh, yeah, you don't have any assignments. You just unlock these achievements. And when you do them, then you get points and that goes toward your grade. I'm like, these are just assignments. We've given them a new name. You're letting us choose how many we do. So like that's a really obvious example. But you'll sometimes see this with people who with classrooms that might say, oh, we're going to give badges. You know, we're going to, you know, somehow bring in that feeling that somehow that's gamification. And to that, I would say, do you play the video games you like because of badges? And probably the answer is no. <laughs> it's it's a terrible video game. Right. But, but I got a sticker at the end. <laughs> eh, right. Exactly. I'm like, I don't play like even, you know, very, very basic. You know, I don't play a Mario game because I get a star at the end. Right. I'm not playing it to get to that. I'm playing it for the journey, the feeling of challenge, the level design, the things that make me feel like I want to keep playing. Am I glad that I got the star? Yes, I'm glad. But why am I glad? Because the experience itself made me made me feel good about myself and my own personal achievement by making it to that point. Right? If you just halfway through said, oh, good job. You're sure. You're just stiffer. Be like, why am I doing this? So... I think the idea of gamification, like so many things related to education, can be extremely effective and impactful. And it really comes down to the execution and the actual implementation. You know, as you were describing that, I thought about side quests, right? And a side quest is is optional. You're get you you have the main structure of the game. And I, I think for me, like what is a great indicator that I'm really enjoying something? And it is a movement away from efficiency of just doing the minimum for, to get from point A to point B. And I love the idea of, hey, this is how you get through this. This is how you navigate it if that's all you're trying to do. But if you're interested, if you're curious, we have side quests. We have some inefficiencies and, and we can make them fun. We can make the gates fun. We can make we can make entering and, and beginning them kind of surprising and, and interesting and then leave it up to any, you know, like like you were saying, any kind of intrinsic drive. Yeah, I like that framing. That's very true. I'm who knows how many hours in to my first and currently only playthrough of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which at this point is like six months old uh, or almost six months old. And I'm still like, I feel nowhere near to I'm like, I have so much left to do. But to your point, I'm definitely not about efficiency. Um, I'm about doing the things that I'm deriving enjoyment from. And that's based on who I am psychologically and what motivates me and like what I enjoy about the game. That's going to be different for every person. Uh, and that's such a, a good way of framing it because a game like that, you're like, nothing stops you from the very beginning. You can go straight to the end. You can go to the boss as soon as they drop you into the world with the clothes on your back and a stick and that's it. Right. If that's what you want, go for it. Or you can spend hundreds of hours you know, wandering around, which is less efficient, but might make your experience better. So, you know, I, I work in the world of you know, exercise and fitness and, uh, you know, adults tend to get preoccupied with how many sets, how many reps they get from point A to point B. You know, when kids are, are learning to walk or crawl or, or, you know, play around on, on uh, playground equipment, 
they're not they're not paying attention to any of that they're so uh, they're leveling up just by virtue of, of doing the thing the enjoyment of the thing at some point you know they may find they've upgraded enough to take on the the boss with more than uh you know with the stick and the clothes on they they, <laughs> they showed up with right to use your analogy all right let me ask you this um i i got a chance to to ask you all the things that that i wanted to and very much got a lot of value and enjoyed hearing your your answers is there anything i should have asked you that i didn't you brought up like that high quality use of screens and i said mm-hmm. you know it's, it's whatever you really need it to be but i think the other side of that coin is who's in the center of our decision making when it comes to screen time we often center our kids i completely understand why we do that uh but what would it look like if instead we centered like the whole needs of our family because if we focus just on the kid then what's often falling to the side or like why we might need the use of a screen like I spoke to when it comes to like inequalities and gaps that might necessitate a use of a screen. But it also allows me sometimes to think about, you know, is there something like coming up that really is not working well? So if I ask myself, you know, is this use of a screen benefiting the whole family? Well, if my kid is watching 30 minutes of a show and then they're having a 15 minute meltdown that the show is over. Is that, is that working? You know, I'm getting 30 minutes, but then I'm having to spend 15. Is that benefiting me? I don't, I mean, I can't make the decision for a family, but that's a decision to make and see, okay, is, is this still a benefit to me? Yeah. Is the juice Um, worth the squeeze? Exactly. Exactly. Is this still beneficial? And if it's not, the reason I like framing it that way is that I, I don't need to blame the screen because it's not going to help me tomorrow when the same thing's happening. But I can use that as information and I can decide what to change about it. And I think that's also really helpful framing and modeling for our kids to say, hey, you know, every day this week, we're watching 30 minutes of show. It ends. It's really hard to stop. This doesn't feel good. So here's something I can think to change. And then propose something, right? We try a different show. We try a different time of day. We try a, a big physical activity beforehand or something. Um, and maybe give our kids the choice too. Like, which of those do you want to try tomorrow? And then try it. And then say, how did that go? Did it feel easier? Did it feel harder? Did it feel the same? Here's what I noticed. What did you notice? Because then we're actually showing that process of kind of treating it like data and figuring out how does this work well? How do we need to make changes so that our kids can also figure that out for themselves? So I think finding that balance for families can be a lot more nuanced than we might think it is. And I think when we take that approach, we can also center ourselves in that conversation, which I think is worth having. Yeah, just zoom out, look at it in the bigger picture, look at it in the context of how can I still give my kid autonomy, give them choices. Mm -hmm. We don't have to respond like it's DEFCON 1 every time something bad happens, we can just go, hey, this didn't seem to work that well. Do you want to try something else tomorrow? Yes. Do you want to try a different sequence? Just let it let it play. Right. Because then also they're seeing that like I can have a hard time and it's not like a value judgment of my character. Right. And I think that's really important for kids to feel. So the same thing where we're maybe not being successful in this context. And we're at peace with it. We're okay with that because we're getting good at, at making mistakes. Yeah. All right. Listen, this is a great conversation. Thanks for, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. How can folks follow you? Um, you can find me on Instagram. The easiest way to find me at the Gamer Educator. And I'm there. I have a website that has some materials on it. 
but most everything I do really lives on Instagram. So find me there for all things management, management of screen time. Thanks a lot, Ash. Thank you. Happy day. I loved so much of this interview, but what I keep coming back to is this idea of getting good at making mistakes. And when I think about that, I get excited about the potential of video games to help our kids develop essential mental skills and emotional skills. And now I finally understand Roblox. Amazing. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Special thanks to my guest, Ash Brandon. You can learn more at thegamereducator.com and on Instagram, thegamereducator. One word. I've got five more words for you. Take care of yourself, man. And if you enjoyed this episode, throw an old rating up on your podcast platform of choice. It helps a lot. This has been the Dad Strength Podcast. Title music by Daniel Ross. Additional music by Mike Ford and Jeremy Glenn. Edited by Jeremy Glenn.